Let's get started. The uh, official crowner says uh, 1 p.m. Thank you very much for attending the 1 p.m. session, the title of which is World Building. Uh, we have assembled three quarters of a great panel, uh, and then our fourth panelist is not here at the moment, but I'm sure he who's, will Who's the fourth panelist? What's that? Who's the fourth panelist? Uh, Ross. Ross. You want to call him? Uh, I've, uh, I've sent out a little bit of messaging, so okay. hopefully he'll respond. What an asshole. Why? <laughs> He knows he needs to be. So, anyway, let's uh, introduce our, our panel members down at the end there. Where we have Lenny uh, Balsera, who is with Eagle Hat Games. He's worked on a variety of games, including ah, number four. Hey, Ross! He's worked on a number of games, including uh, the State Board of Stuff. I'm in time. Uh, yeah, you, you are. Um, we also have Ross Watson down there at the end. Uh, his group is the Evil Beagle game, but he does a lot of uh, freelance work on role-playing game uh, products. He's also a podcaster and uh, has been involved in many different products for many different people. Uh, great, then we have Marshall Moreska, yeah, an author, a fantasy author, and uh, Meridane, am I saying that correct? Meridane, yes. Meridane Fantasy Monopolis. And uh, then here on this end, we have Dave Martin, who for, I guess, almost 20 years now, is uh, Wrecking Crew Group. That makes me sound really old. That, that does make you sound old. You started at three. His Wrecking Crew Group goes around the country and demos uh, Onyx Path and White Wolf, World of Darkness type uh, game products. So, um, a, a good diverse group, and we're going to talk about world building today. So, um, I'm going to ask each of the panel members, I'm just going to kind of go down from one end and go to the other, and ask you when you're involved in either building the world or getting familiar with the world, what's your starting point? What's the kind of the first principle that you get involved in? What's the first idea and then spreading outwards from that? Ross, do you want to tackle that one? Well, there's a lot of ways to look at it. I think if you want to just look at the overall idea of world building, it's kind of separated from the idea of fiction or game. Right, uh, and this is something I learned from the great, the late great Aaron Alston. Uh, it always boils down to characters and conflict. Mm -hmm. Those two things are at the heart of world building. You know, what is the conflict that's driving the world? What are, who are the characters that are involved in it? You start with those two things, Aaron would say, and that'll give you the rest. And I think that's good advice. Great. Anything? Uh, I I actually I agree with that 100%. For me, it always starts with trying to find. Um, uh, I mean, I guess the crass way of putting it is, why should anyone care? Uh, and uh, that that answering that question always leads me to what are the the themes, the human interest themes that 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 this world, uh, the stories in this world could help tell, and that inevitably leads me back to characters and their motivations and and so on and so forth. So that's great. Yeah. Marshall, what about you? Well, for me, I mean, character and motivation is, of course, crucial, especially in terms of the storytelling aspect of any world you build. But I'm always, personally, I always like building the playground first and then finding finding the stories and the characters that are in there and building the stories out of that. But I, I can be an obsessive world builder where I will build so much more than I ever actually need mm. to tell the story. And I, I also do not try and bore people with all that peripheral stuff <laughs> that you don't really need to know for the story. But I love to know that stuff. I need to know that stuff. I have to like know what's on the other side of the hill. I can't just say there's stuff over there. I, I need to know for me to be able to write it. Well, and, and we should, and I mean, you, you were sort of trying to separate the act of world building from fiction or game, but like, right. I, I think it, it does bear mentioning that like those are two very different jobs. Absolutely. Right, right of world building, and so there's like, in, for fiction, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of work that you have to do in fiction that on some level you don't have to do in games as much for, right. for, for different reasons, I, I think, but we'll, that will probably come up in the, we'll do probably get Yeah, I kind of waited my turn. Uh, <laughs> Why start now? Well, uh, ow! Pain. If you prick us, will we not bleed? Um, I start with the haves versus the have-not. Who has whatever I'm going to build the story around, right? Um, I run mostly White Wolf, Onyx Path stuff, so most of the examples I give will be vampire, werewolf, stuff like that. If, if you don't understand, raise your hand, throw a brick at me, I'll translate it to something else, okay? So who has what... And why is it important? 
right? If it's a port city, who controls the majority of the shipping and that kind of a stuff? Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing, I gotta have a good idea. If I don't have a good idea, then I can't really build anything because anything I build is gonna suck. And that is not good. It makes for terrible games. And um, then last but not least, I gotta have a good fish story. Um, I had an uncle who was a terrible fisherman and he never brought home any fish that he caught, but he always had a really good story and how it got away or the rod malfunctioned or whatever, and he would stop by the grocery store and grab salmon or catfish or whatever we were going to have for dinner because he never caught anything. I mean, seriously, never. But he always had a really good fish story. So if I'm going to make the city around the port commerce, then I have to have something engaging. That's kind of what they were talking about. Why do they care? I can have something engaging about why the prince or why the head of this clan of werewolves runs this and how does he run it because it has to make sense because if it doesn't make sense my players are going to do horrible violent things to my story and then the story will fall apart and then I gotta start over again and that sucks so let me go back to something Marshall touched on just saying that when you are starting out you want to make sure you have a good underpinning of stuff and so it kind of comes back to the question of whether you're a top down or a bottom up world builder right is your goal to create a fairly comprehensive world and then figure out a way to set your story on top of that or are you thinking story and then just building the pieces of the world necessary to support that framework are you building a true structure of a world or are you actually making kind of an edifice that that only the parts of it are real that are perceived by I've personally come very big on bottom up world building I, it, it's it's a process that I, it took me a while to get to, but now that I, I've reached it, I, I always like starting solely with geography and then building up with that from flora and fauna and building cultures from that because culture is defined so much by what their geography is, what their biomes around them are, what animals they have that they can eat or domesticate, what plants they have that they can eat and domesticate. Everything else comes from that. And you can use that to then create what the culture is. So you can break the mold of the typical, you know, this is medieval Europe with the serial numbers filed off sort of <laughs> sort of fantasy. Which cliche, my favorite fantasy. Yes. And Dave, yes, you're nodding along. So I, I try to do that, but I'm horribly ADHD, and normally somewhere along the line I get this idea. Wouldn't it be cool if this happens? And I'm like, man, that would be cool. Okay, and then I have to find a way that's believable. Remember the fish story, my uncle who sucks as a fisherman. How do I take that idea and I put it into the city, right? Like, for example, what if I had a mage that found a new way to harvest sunlight through some special solar panel? I don't know, whatever. But I've got a, a city that's mostly built around shipping and commerce, okay? So if he's doing that, how is that going to impact? And it's got to make sense, and it's got to have something that's going to you know, fish up my players. Well, and the other thing is to always remember that everything is incredibly complex, and you can have a city that's more than just, right. you know, the werewolf clan who runs the shipping industry, and, you know, the fact that there is, you know, a mage who's harvesting the sun power also, you know, five blocks away doesn't hurt the fact that you're... Absolutely. <laughs> and, in fact, it, it makes it richer. So I, I want to keep going down. So, Lenny, do you have a different approach from that? What, what? Oh, God, yes. I'm 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 top down largely speaking because I'm lazy, right? Um, I, I have no other excuse for it than that. Like uh, um, because my personal because I'm also talking in the context of role playing games, um, and especially because I'm most often talking in the context of running role playing games. Um, anything that is not of immediate player interest for me, is largely speaking unnecessary. So, um, and because I tend to run a lot of improvised games, right, where it's sort of like we discover the pieces of this thing as we go. So world building ends up being, for me, most of the time, um, a collaborative activity that happens sort of at the table, even if the participants are not always aware that that's what's going on, right? So, like, if, if I'm describing a setting and then I've described a couple of details that, for example, might be contradictory, and some player asks me about it, right? I'll go, huh, yeah, that is weird. I wonder why that is. 
right? And that gives us an opportunity for there's for, your hook. for for world building, right? Because they're going to investigate it and they're going to and they're going to um, find out, you know, what that is, right? Uh, and usually, you know, if you take good enough notes along the way, eventually by emergence, right, you have a world. Um, and I I sort of prefer to do it that way because I I am not burdened by the the, the difficulties of having to write fantasy novels. So, uh, you know. Uh, I think it's interesting that in the middle of the table here we have very different kind of polar opposites. Please don't brawl. Well, and part of that is, for me, back when I used to role-play game far more often, I was terrible at improv. And when I was an actor, I was terrible at improv. I need to, I need to have that structure because I can't be like, um, yeah, you're right, they're should be hold on let me get my notes <laughs> sure, but, you can do, but, but sometimes i do that but right? that, like, because that's me i'm terrible minutes. at improv I, I i am a big fan he, we've been talking about this all kind actually i'm a huge fan of like the i don't i don't have anything for what you just did give me five minutes yeah he, you say, transparency you, is you, what you go, all about you go to the, the, can, go to the head you go to the head and figure <laughs> it out but no but like that's an interesting point but, i just once <laughs> but like be be uh, aware that when we do have very two different like very purchases or whatever but like I respect the hell out of bottom up world building like the people that can do it and do it well I I just that's not me so when people can do that well I'm like oh my god this is fascinating right like all this detail and, 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 and work that you put into this so, uh, but also when I do bottom up world building I don't like just you know like game it from you know like which civilizations are going to rise or anything like you can do that if you're really really patient <laughs> about what you're doing but i mean you obviously are going to want to like set a goalpost ahead of you like this is what i'm working toward this is the big idea that i'm that i'm aiming at and build it towards that ross what's your take well i, I like what uh, i'm sorry what's your name again marshall i like that what marshall just had to say about aiming for the big idea and i'm honestly not certain if this is top down or bottom up to do it from just a very simple idea uh, and I think there's multiple ways of doing which are valid but I'm going to give you three quick examples of the big idea that then created a world a very compelling world um, the first example is I created a setting called the Cursed for Savage Worlds and a Cursed came to me when I said you know what I'd really like to do is combine Hellboy with Solomon Cain and I took that simple idea and I made a world where you could do that. And I really enjoyed that. And it's, it's been very successful for me. Shane Hensley went to a con many years ago and he saw this awesome painting of a vampire who was also a Confederate soldier. And he said, I want to make a world where that is possible. And he made Deadlands, if anybody knows what Deadlands is. That's where that came from. And there's even been some really great fiction novels that have come out of uh, a guy being challenged to combine Pokemon and a lost Roman legion. Yeah. And he made a book where that was possible. He made a series of books where that was possible. And, and Jim, Butcher's Jim Butcher's Codex, Codex Alera. Yeah. So you could take, to me, I, I, I like the approach of taking that simple idea and building towards that or building from that. I guess that's kind of really the or definition. building out from right. that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if that's top down or bottom up, but that's, that's where I come from on that. So... I, I, multiple different takes on the same thing. Are these conversion solutions? I mean, do you think that, regardless of your method, if you, if you start down from the ground up of the geography and build your way up through cultures and, and create a nice foundation to put your story on, or if you start from story and asking questions and building ideas on that, do you eventually arrive at more or less the same place? Are these all gonna arrive at the same type of world? Given, given enough time, like, I don't know, I think that there's, that with top-down, uh, world building what a lot of times what you can end up with is something that can be very picaresque like the the the, the strength of bottom up world building is consistency right right everything's got a reason everything's got a purpose right like um, when you do you know when you assemble you know like at the end of a campaign you know when I'm looking at all these sort of like notes on on the weird shit that we've all made up about this world there might be a lot of it in there that like from from the standpoint of internal consistency doesn't make a whole lot of sense right um that's okay um our actual real world is like that on some level um truth is always stranger than fiction truth is always stranger than fiction right so so those incongruities don't necessarily bother me but like so they can i think they can get to different results. I think there are different features of a world that has been built in a, in a bottom-up way versus sort of a, a top-down way. I, I, I think that there's a couple of things. <clears throat> I, To be honest with you, I had never heard the term bottom-up or top-down building. I, I guess that makes me more of a middle 
start in the middle. I, I think. <laughs> I, th I think I will build sideways. <laughs> well, it worked for Willy Wonka in his elevator. You know. <laughs> I think for me, I spend. I keep going back to the fish story, but it has to make sense. It has to be able to survive critical thought, and I think that, from where I'm sitting, is more important than how you get there. If my players can do whatever in the game. And I'm able to go, all right, that makes sense. Well, and then they, they start poking around in the politics or the combat or, or whatever else. And as long as they can continue to pursue the story, then I'm happy. And a lot of the world building or encounter building or whatever hinge on an idea that I get. And then I have to find a way to merge that with my overall setting. And I spend quite a bit of time developing my settings. So I guess that'd be bottom down. Yeah. Right, bottom, bottom up. up, there it is. The elevator. Bottom you know, up. But I think that as long <laughs> as you can put something up. together that your players can enjoy, and more importantly, and don't tell anybody I said this, you enjoy running. Because if you don't enjoy running it, you're not going to have passion. And if you don't have passion, your players are going to come, they're going to, it's going to come across flat to them. And if it comes across flat to them, it's going to suck. And then nobody's going to be happy. And I don't know about you guys, but my Saturdays are sacred. My wife only lets me game a certain amount. We're all married, we got kids, so we want to have an explosion of fun when we get together. They want to have a good time playing, I want to have a good time running. Let's make this work. And I think that's more important than whether you start up here or there, because all of our brains work differently. And I think if you just find something that you can put the ideas and the setting together. Right. Well, and bottom-up, I think, has a great advantage for, for role-playing because it creates then the big sandbox that, you know, if they go, what do we go over here and find out what happens, then you have what happens over there. I mean, I, I love the bit in when Community did their two Dungeons & Dragons episodes where in the second one of them, one of the players decided he was going to be difficult. It's like, well, what if I go to that village, like, you know, trying to, like, you're not prepared for what I'm about to say. Now it's like, oh, okay, one sec, I have some notes. <laughs> if you have the big sandbox, then your players can Absolutely. play everywhere in it. Well, and if, you're, if your goal is to, you know, publish a world book, right, then, like, you sort of don't have a choice, right? right. Like, you <laughs> kind of have to, to do... Um, so I'm pretty sure that I can talk about this, um, but I'm one of the, the writers on... Um, uh, Titan's Grave, The Ashes of Volcano, which is Will Wheaton's uh, Geek and Sundry RPG film project. Uh, and um, there's going to be a book that comes out at, at Gen Con that's a, that's a world book. So like next month? Uh, Gen Con? Yeah, they're, they're, wow. they're, they're racing. They're, okay. they're swinging hard for that fence. All right. Um, we'll see what happens. But um, so that has been, like, I've had to, you know, do some some bottom up world building and it's been that that kind of a process where there's like um, bits and pieces of lore that that we're making up establishing sort of the rules of the way that the world works why the those rules are the way they are and then moving forward so i mean i think that in different situations you're going to use different techniques of world building i guess that's what i'm getting to is right take only what you need to survive uh, right? so what do you need to survive for writing because we've talked a lot about how this works for different styles of games but in the specific instance of writing a fantasy novel or even a series of fantasy novels that occur in a shared universe what's important well that depends on what each writer, how they write and what they need. I mean, for me, like I said, I always need to know what's on the other side of the hill, just in case I need to know what's over there. Um, but I know plenty of other writers who they don't necessarily need to know that. It also depends on the kind of story you want to write, and you build the world to that story. Or, more correctly, there are some worlds that were clearly built to tell a specific story, and they don't really support another story of that. And there are worlds that are built where all sorts of stories can take place. The, the one example I can think of, who's read the David Eddings' The Belkariad? Yeah. That, that, that is a world that was built to tell that story. And when they said, can we have a sequel, the only sequel he could write was essentially tell that story again. <laughs> the Malorian. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but for me, I need, I need the sandbox to play in um, because... But I know plenty of plenty of writers who also are a little more improvisational in the way they write, and they can just be like, 
oh, this is the order of insert Knight's Order's name later <laughs> and, and keep going. And I can never do that. Like, I need, I need to know the, you know, thousand-year history behind that order and so before I can even get going on that. So I do a lot of building and I do a lot of outlining before I even really start writing. Yeah. So, uh, Ross, going into the specific issues that gamers have to deal with, gamers on top of building a world also have to work in the mechanics for their games into it. Is there any specific interface between mechanics, the system you're working in, and the world you're building, where you know, is there some kind of interplay there? Well, um, there's two things there, and I think Dave touched on it earlier. Vers verisimilitude is what I think Dave was talking about. You know, there has to be sort of a believable thing. Like if a, if a mechanic says, I can only swing my sword this awesome way once a day, the world should really tell me why. The designer should really you know, take the time to tell me why that only happens. Because if you do that, otherwise it's just like, I don't understand. I, it's a sword, I swing it. Why can't I you know, do this thing more awesome once a day? It doesn't make sense. It kind of pulls people out of the world. So there's verisimilitude, I think, is, is one of the, the first ways there. But if you ask me like, what the most important bit about world building is for gaming, and this is regardless of any system, um, I would say it's what I like to call the adventuring paradigm. What are you supposed to do in this world? Huh? Right? Shadowrun has an excellent adventuring paradigm. It's been around for years, and it's survived really, really well. Shadowrun says, you are criminals working for a, a corporation, typically through the, the agency of a guy called Mr. Johnson, despite all the security elements and things that get in your way. You shoot people in the, in the face for money. And Shadowrun has, has done that really, really well. You know what you're getting into. You know the context to build your character. You know, the GM knows the context and the way to get you guys engaged in the game that he's running, and it's wonderful like that. But there's other games that don't have nearly as strong uh, adventuring paradigm. Uh, for years, D&D was just like, an old man meets you in a tavern and gives you a quest, right? That was the adventuring paradigm of T&T. Uh, and it got to be cliche. Right? It just, it There's just a mysterious really cave five miles away that has tons of cool stuff in it. Right. Now, Paizo, Paizo does a really good job of this. They have the Pathfinder Society, and that's their adventuring paradigm. The Pathfinder Society sends you on a quest to find or locate some object despite all the monsters and things getting your way. The adventuring paradigm ideally is you are people X who do Y despite Z. If you have that context in your world when you're building it for gaming, because it's going to be used by other people. Marshall doesn't have to worry about that. He's writing his story, right? But when you're doing role-playing games, you're giving it to other people. And you want to give them a context in which to engage and anchor themselves in that world you built. So that's my answer to that. Okay. Any other, other gamer guys that have anything to add to that as far as interfacing mechanics and making mechanics work with the world? Yeah. Um, don't use the ones that suck. <laughs> so if I'm running a game, um, take for instance, um, how many of your hands are familiar with Old World of Darkness? Okay, there is a mechanic that says if I use my magic pen, I stab you. Sorry, we'll get you medical help. All right. All right. And it's a magic pen that does all aggravated right. damage. All of the successes are aggravated. Okay, you're dead. Okay. All right. Well, if that's the case, gangrels and werewolves now rule the world, and any mage who can generate anything aggravated now rules the world. That sucks. If I'm a Toreador and I want to do social, hello, that, I, I can't, because if I upset the gangrel, he's going to come claw my face off, and then I die. So what I did is I fixed the mechanic. So you paid the money for the game. If there's a rule you don't like, fix it, or don't use it at all. I changed the damage to where it's just the weapon itself that does the aggravated damage, it's still scary because it's aggravated. Ah, 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 ah. However, it still works. Hi, guys. Hi. Yeah, let's say you have a world where the mechanics say that um, mystic knights with laser swords can block every energy bolt sent their way, and therefore... That's that's yeah. a terrible idea. I know. I know. It would never work. No one will ever watch that. Right. But, but if these knights with their laser swords can block block all the laser blasts in the world, um, then why doesn't everybody carry laser swords and become these mystic knights? Right. So there has to be some kind of context in the world. You have to say, well, it's very difficult to become one of these mystic knights. And you, you have, have to really follow a very strong sense of morality, and not everybody even can be a mystic knight with a laser sword. Right. So if you put some context in the world to make it. Uh, to make it make sense, or similitude, right? Then it's okay to have some guys who are really awesome and block all the laser blasts in the world because they're pretty rare and being them is hard and you can't just mount them on the outside of every ship in the universe, fly around and vulnerable. 
Does that answer your question? I would watch that. Just say it. Um, Just say it. If I, had a, I, if I had a bunch of Mystic Knights with laser swords that could block every single laser blast, I'd put them all on the outside of my ship and fly around anywhere I wanted. Right. I think, I, I just want to go back, and again, I, I'm not a writer, I'm not an author. If you're playing a game and you want to add a couple of rules, we talked about this in another panel, do it. You bought the book, it's your money, your toys, have fun. Because at the end of the day, like I said before, if you're not having fun and your players aren't having fun, then it's time wasted and that sucks. I want to add a note about what you were saying with the adventuring paradigm. Um, I think there's also a broader way to look at it uh, in terms of like utility because um, it's sort of the same thing that you were saying about how some worlds are built to tell one story and some worlds uh, are built in such a way that several stories can be told in, against that backdrop. I think that to some degree, games have that same disparity of design, right? Like, there are some game worlds that are designed so that they can support a strong adventuring paradigm and not that much else. And then there are game worlds that are designed to handle, I guess, sort of a broader range of stories. And when you're talking about the latter example, you have to extend that idea of the adventuring paradigm out into, like, all possible avenues of utility. What are the things that the players are going to be doing in this world? Yeah. And for each scope of activity, there has to be enough background and context and mechanical support in the world in order to justify sort of that, doing that, right? Like, the probably one of the strongest examples older examples of this is when you start talking about GURPS Infinite Worlds stuff. Right? Universal systems. Right, universal system. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking Infinite Worlds specifically. Okay. Uh, because you have a lot of different characters from a lot of different times and Not places. unlike Rifts. Not unlike sure. Rifts, right. Like, or Torg. Or Torg, hanging out all together. Ooh, Torg. Torg is awesome. So when you're hanging out in that framework, right, you need to have a system whereby the swashbuckling guy can do cool swashbuckling stuff and the magic person can do cool magic right. stuff. And you have to sort of have ties of causality, you know, or, or context in your world and in your mechanics to sort of explain why all of these scopes of activity can coexist. Well, the, the right, tie back so. into the conflict, right? The main conflict. Like, Torg is a great way of doing this. I mean, you, right. yeah, you're a swashbuckler. I'm a pulp hero. Marshall right. is from a fantasy world with a magic sword. We're all together because of the conflict. The High Lords are invading Earth and we have to fight them off. Right. That's our, that's our conflict that ties us all together, even, even though we're from vastly different genres. Right. Which is fine, because Torg actually makes that a thing. Like, there's a mechanic for right. my genre versus your genre versus your genre. Uh, but yeah, yeah and like Shadowrun, the main conflict between the, the, super, the corp mega corporations and the normal people, you can you can play Shadowrun and not even be Shadowrunners. You can be guys who are part of the uh, dock wagon crews, or you can be mercenaries, or you can, you know, there's lots of different ways to play that game. Right. Different adventure paradigms that circle around that conflict. Are any of the other ones fun? Yeah, I, yeah they're all fun. I don't. I'm, I'm asking, I, I'm, uh, this is not... Uh, oh, hell yeah. Uh, okay, cool. I've played Shadowrun for decades, man. You can do, you can, it's, a, it's a very versatile world. That's, that's interesting. Because I've always perceived Shadowrun as a setting where that dominant adventure paradigm, being Shadowrunners, kicking over stuff illegally for money, is, largely speaking, what that setting handles. Okay, I, I, hold on, hold on, hold on just a second. We've spent some time I'm sorry. about specialized... Uh, problems yeah. when you're a gaming person trying to make the gaming world things that you have to worry about that uh, people who are writing books don't know. Is there any partial going the other way? Okay. Are there any special challenges that you have as a writer that these guys don't need to deal with? Um, well, um, you have to end your story instead of saying, and we'll wrap that up next week. <laughs> <laughs> you actually have to have a complete arc <laughs> instead of designing it to just sort of keep going. Closure keep going. is good. Closure. Yeah, you need your closure. Um, so you need you need to you need to structure your stories that way as opposed to just having them sort of ramble on forever. Unless you're the kind of writer who can get away with that, and then you die, and somebody else has to finish your books for you. <laughs> um, Does that inform any of your world building choices? Um, to a degree, it does, because you have to you have to have that sort of end point that you can get to, where things are stable again. Yeah, I mean, because a story is essentially you something happens that destroys the stability that the story had to begin with and 
people run around and, and chase bees off themselves for a while and and then thing you know resolve them one way or another and things calm down again and you can go back go back to normal or find a new normal so your your story building has to be able to support your world has to support that kind of restructuring or settling so uh, it's uh, 1.30, this is the point in the panel where I always like to go down the row of panelists and say, throw an idea out there to people who are creating their own worlds for something cool that you can do, for something useful that they can do for their own, whether it's gaming or whether it's writing, uh, that would improve what they're trying to do. Dave, you have anything? Oh, yeah. Okay, nobody controls everything. Um, a lot of I, I play in a lot of other people's games, and one of the things that I see a lot of new storytellers, DMs, GMs, whatever, start off with is this is Bob, and he controls all of this. That's never going to happen. He can't control everything. Otherwise, he doesn't have anybody to, to, to resist against, right? So if Bob's going to control this, how does he control it, and what cracks what fissures are existing in his world because that right there is a great start for a story because either you're going to help Bob or you're not going to help Bob or you're going to be the disinterested third party that somebody's going to have to push one way or the other so there's a finite amount of resources and an easy way to do that is like if I'm doing influence of that ship city we were talking about you know with the port and all of that Okay, so if we talk about the port, who has control of what's coming in and out of the port, assign it 1 to 10. Well, if Bob has 8 points of that, okay, great. Then you need to figure out how he's holding on to it, how he's maintaining it, what his plan is to get the other two, and then who has the other two points, and how are they keeping Bob from getting those two points? Does that make sense? Yes? No? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Generally speaking, any absolutes... Absolute truths in your world are, I think, limiting, generally speaking. Right? Well, they can be from the unreliable narrator. Right. That, that crazy guy down the street believes that that guy is absolute. Right. Or rumor has it right. that so-and-so is absolute. And that way, that gives you an out, right? Yeah. You, can, you can present the idea or the trope without making it set in stone. And embrace that un- unreliable narrator. That, that, <laughs> what, that what people hear about the world is not even remotely true. Um, one place I'd go is don't be afraid to be really specific and give things proper names. Because a lot of times, especially in, in a lot of fantasy trope things, you'll see like things like, here's the golden quarter, here's the beggar's quarter, here's the, you know... And cities and places, people don't actually do that. They give, they give streets real names. They give places real names. And don't be afraid to make it specific and make it, give it its own special color. That's the Wharf District. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one. I mean, to a degree they do. I mean, Is that where they keep the Klingons? That's indeed. <laughs> it's scary that that actually was the first thing I thought. <laughs> no, he means, he means by water. <laughs> That's what he means. <laughs> okay. um, but, but give things specific names. Give street specific names. Give give people specific titles and specific control over what they're doing. And get get colorful. Get interesting. I I love that, and I'm I'm about to say why. I have two pieces of advice for you. The first one is: if your world includes magic, make up those rules first, because it will influence the rest of what you do. Like uh, I have seen. So many, I read so many, because I love fantasy, bad fantasy novels, right? Where, like, it's clear that, like, the author did not have a good handle on how magic worked in their own world when they started writing. So then, all of a sudden, you get later into the books, and these increasing number of contrivances have to happen in order to make magic (laughs) stuff work out. All the time turners were destroyed. It's a shame. It's a shame, (laughs) right. Exactly, right? So, like... Like, one of the things, the more fantastic an element is, the further removed an element is from human experience, from relatable human experience, the more consistent the rules that govern that element have to be, for me. Um, Because that's what's going to give people the ability to get into that and ground themselves in it and and understand it, what what will give it verisimilitude, right? 
Um, so that's piece of advice number one. Piece of advice number two, this riffs off what you were saying about specificity, is that one of the very best ways to start the train rolling is any time that you describe anything in your world, describe it and add one significant detail. And that one significant detail is the, is the portal to right, this, um, this, this specificity that you're talking about. So yeah, and it takes it away from being like a huge info dump and makes right. it a gradual exploration of the topic. Of the topic, right. right. And so, for example, we were, uh, we were doing on a previous panel, um, uh, we was talking about um, a, you know, a typical tavern scene where you might walk into um, a, a tavern, a fantasy tavern, in cliche, right? Um, and I, as the GM, am describing to you uh, these things, and I, I, I could say to you, oh, it's a tavern, there's tables and chairs, and there's a bar, and there's a bartender, and the bartender's wiping down the counter, or whatever, and, like, you've checked, you're on your phone at this point, right? Like, you've checked out. Because I'm describing to you every tavern ever in a fantasy setting. But if you walk in the door, and I say, you walk into this tavern. This tavern is decorated with the shields of the armies of the five neighboring countries around the, the, the city that this tavern is in. The bartender is wiping down the counter, but she's not using a sponge. She's using some kind of like coral or sea rock and she's pregnant, right? I haven't made up a lot of information but I've done, in sort of by implication, right, a lot of world building there. Right. Like, why do they decorate this bar with these shields? Why is this lady who's very pregnant doing, like, manual labor as the bartender? Why doesn't she have an assistant? What is that thing in her hand? Is it magical? Where did it come from, right? Like, just those three significant details. Why is that she I, still working when she's pregnant? Right. Why are those, the, the three significant details that I gave you lead you, right, to a lot of different questions that you can answer in order to enrich your setting. And that is sort of like how I think you can get to, if you have a, are having a difficult time sort of trying to figure out how to get to that specificity, right. I think that can be a good way to break log jams and get you sort of started on that. To add to that, you're, if you pay close attention to what your players are doing, they'll, they'll build half your world for you. If you just pay attention to what they're doing, well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go make this business or industry over here. When that character dies or rotates out, hang on to that. Hang on to that business, whatever that is, because now that's something that's already fleshed out. You don't even have to worry. Can I have a copy of that? Yes, and now it's in the city. And they'll 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 write half your adventures. They'll build half your city with you. They'll provide half of the politics that are going on around them. Just listen to them. Well, I'm going to draw in again from a good friend of mine, Daryl Hardy, and he likes to say that uh, for role-playing games, worlds are really story worlds. They cross over some of the boundaries between fiction and, and uh, just a, a place to run a game, especially for a campaign or for publication for other people to play in. And he uses a term that I've really liked uh, where he calls it an, what he calls an agency node. And he says that a story world should have agency nodes that are places, these are things that, uh, they are tipping points. They're things for characters to do, problems for them to solve, right? Put these tipping points in the world and kind of showcase, put a, put a lampshade on them. It's like, there's a problem over here. There's a thing that could go either way. And you, as a player, I mean, this is an opportunity for you to get involved in the world and make some kind of lasting change. And it's, it, I think it's important to uh, world building, especially for role playing games, especially for a publication, if you're going to get it, put it out there for other people to play in, because it, it's, it's, uh, it's that motivation to look at the map and go, oh, we could go over here. Because over here, there's that insane general. I mean, he's completely a lunatic. But if, if someone could get him on the right path, they could actually make a lot of progress you know, to, against the demon armies. Or over here, there's you know, this empty throne that's been uh, absent for 500 years from a broken empire. And if someone could just unite those people, man, think of all the things we could do, right? Agency nodes is, is, a, is an interesting term to put on those things. I, just, I liked it, and I wanted to showcase it as, as part of world building, because I think it's important for that specific thing. Not so important for a home campaign, because you already know what you're going to do there. Not so important for, obviously, uh, fiction, because you, you're going to present the, the problems in a different way. But for that specific purpose, I really like it. But in what? fiction, you kind of, I kind of do things like that in, in a way in which, in writing one book, Knowing that I've got a plan right. for book three or whatever, I'm gonna I'm gonna plant something right there right. that uh, 
you may or may not notice, but that's going to fall over later. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have I have one one very quick piece of advice too. If you can get the gig where somebody who has done a lot of bottom-up world building with their novels will just hand it to you to make games out of? Yeah, like, uh, I don't know, Jim Butcher? That's a good gig. <laughs> because what you find out is that a lot of the work that you thought you would have to do, a lot of fantasy authors do a lot of very complete bottom-up world building. So if you work on, on licensed games, what you often discover is that the author has done all of this stuff for you, and you can just sort of start attaching mechanics on top of it and it, it's it. It's, a well, bit. it's interesting some of the authors with the most richest worlds are in fact or have been in fact gamers. I'll give you an example. George R. R. Martin yeah. and the Game of Thrones. It's, everybody loves Game of Thrones, right? It's a very interesting complex world with a lot of stuff going on in it and I'm not surprised because George you know, kind of bit his teeth on uh, Superworld back in the day uh, when he was creating wild cards. Him and his, his, his gaming group would get together and they would just play and come up with all these crazy stories and, like, and world build. They world build, and, it, you know, and that, that translates over very well to a rich and interesting uh, set. No, on some level, I'm fascinated. He has kind of gotten away with the non specific, which could lead you into. Because into, all the books, there's the north, yeah. and the wall, yeah. <laughs> and the air. Like, it's all very, you know, these general names that you can. Right. And, he does it in a way that doesn't feel cliche, right. but it's the sort of thing that could easily lead you to cliche. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one way to do that, and one thing that I do is I look for interesting stories in the news. I had a werewolf game that I was running, and there was some bizarre thing that happened in Australia. Australia, they got just bizarre spiders over there. Australia wants you dead. Yes. <laughs> so what I did is I copied just, you know, I'm not a computer genius here, I just... Uh, control A, Control C, onto a Word document, copied, and then I went through edit and I replaced whatever city it was in Australia with Phoenix, Arizona, because that's where I based my game out of. And I printed it out and I said, <clears throat> this is talking about your agency notes, and I said, hey guys, this comes across. Here, uh, <laughs> and they pick it up and honest to goodness, they're like, holy, there's kids in the room so I can't say what they said, holy, holy mackerel, is this, are you serious, where'd you find this? And of course, I changed the newspaper and I put our local newspaper logo on there. I don't know, what does that look like? It looks like uh, Arizona Republic. Huh. And they lost their, they lost their minds. They the went nuts looking Man. for huh? The Adventures of Florida Man. Always <laughs> that one. It, take, in, take any news story that says Florida Man in it and just change it. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. But um, a Florida man was found naked. Yes. Oh, 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 I thought world you said Florida man, Florida man, like Florida man. But yes, Florida man. Florida man. <laughs> Anyways, that kept them busy for three months. For three months, they were trying to sort out the. And I swear, I I caught them talking about. I look. I drove through East Mesa. I didn't see anything. And they were actually looking for it in the real city. It was great. They were so ticked off when they found out it was from Australia. But to, to add on that and to add on what he was talking about, agency notes, that's a great... If you have the, the pre-production time in your game to do something like that, to make like a newspaper or something that's in-world, mm -hmm. you can fill that with story seeds mm -hmm. and, and or agency notes and just be like, oh, yeah, this is, you know... This is tacked up on the wall of the tavern, and or being you know the newsboy out front inside the tavern is throwing these out, and your players can look through it and be like, hey, what's this going on? And and you can and once they get comfortable with that and they're no longer questioning that, there's no reason that their arch enemy can't take over as the editor and change a few things and send them off going forever, going off on other things. Yeah, in, in a home campaign, I mean, that's you're basically talking about plot hooks, right? You'd, yeah, you'd make the yeah. plot hooks. So yeah, absolutely. But that's a great way to, to get yeah. to nonchalantly give plot hooks yeah, to them so. without without tipping your hand. Okay. Well, well I, oh, oh, really, actually, really quick, can I relate this to fiction? Do it. Um, I recently went on a, a spree of reading everything Brandon Sanderson's ever written, and I find that I really, really like his writing. And he wrote this book called The Alloy of, Alloy of Law. And one of the really fun things he did world building wise in that book is as chapter breaks, there were pages from the newspaper of that city in it. And they had nothing to do with the story you were reading, but it was just helping illustrate what the world of the Alley of Law was like. And so that's that's a fun thing that I thought was neat and it was and it was part of a fiction book rather than, than a game. So you know and it related to newspapers, so there you go. <laughs> oh come again. Me? Yeah, I thought you were. No? Okay. No, just not in agreeing. Uh, I was 
if, I thought if we had enough time, maybe what I would do is try and have you all really quickly workshop some ideas for sure. building a world. But I, I'm a little afraid we're a little short on time. So maybe what I'll do instead is throw it open to the group and see what questions <laughs> you may have for our panel. I want to build cliche now. I think you could actually yeah. tell some somebody it's on my an Facebook. internet meme. Yeah, yeah this internet so, somebody meme. on my Facebook. Put no, so I think you can tell some seriously some interesting stories in a, in a land that's all I, about cliche. I run fantasy games of cliche all the time. Go ahead. Record keeping. Do you use post-it notes, index cards, computer? I, yeah, I mostly uh, use uh, Google Docs. Google Docs. For me, yeah. I I am big on my Excel spreadsheets and 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 I I have. And I use Scrivener to write, and I have a whole like subsection of my Scriveners on world building notes. And I do two things: I do World Docs. Not world, oh my gosh, did I just say that? Google Docs, because I can cut and paste and do all kinds of things with my Samsung. I can draw pictures and stuff. The other thing that I do is I'll, I'll get a journal, composition book, whatever you want to call it, and on this side I write the story ideas, what I'm trying to accomplish with my story. On the other side, I write what my players did and what the impact's gonna be, who they pissed off, who's coming after them, blah, 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 blah. And that helps me, because I'm visual. If I can't look at it, it doesn't exist. So that's what I do. And I'll, I, I've even been known to like scotch tape post-its. I used to work in a prison and I couldn't bring computer devices in, but I could have all the post-its I wanted. So I, I'd leave with my pockets full of post-its and I'd have to scotch tape them into my book. And it was a mess. This explains so much about you. I know. I was I was born in Florida. <laughs> oh, so you're Florida man. <laughs> because you have to see what's on the other side of the hill. Do you have like a template that you work up and say, all right, I need to cover politics, I need to cover. Yes, I do. I I, 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 you know, I, I do have I have like my my brief six thing temp six basic item template, and I also have my larger um, culture definition document that, and I go through that, and I don't always fill out every single thing on the list, but but yeah, and I have that, and so I always have a sense of, because I'm also a big believer, when you're, when you're building something, when you're building a world, be it in fantasy, or be it in sci-fi, or space opera, cultures are defined not only by what they have and what's available to them, but who their neighbors are, because if, you know, you can't have some idyllic culture here, and then right on the other side of them is this empirical warring culture that would invade them if you, you know, if you didn't know that that empirical warring culture was there already. Wait, you couldn't have the Federation right next to the Klingons? <laughs> do you, do you can, but the Federation better hold the line. <laughs> oh, I so go too far down the rabbit hole. When I was building, I'm... I have a space opera book that I'm still writing, and when I was doing the world building, I kept, because space is infinite, I kept growing further. Like, okay, I've now worked out to 100 light years from Earth. Okay, what's past that? And I, like, I like had to make myself stop. <laughs> so I want to go back and address um, what you said about the, the, do you address all these things. I create forms for myself just to organize my thought, because it's the three-ring circus at best. And so I'll ask myself, how is this NPC most likely to lash back? How is this NPC most likely to do this? How is this NPC most likely to do that? And then I put in there, I always put in the Jack Bauer factor. How long is it going to take for the ticking bomb before he pulls the lamp cord out of the wall and is ready to zap the guy, right? And if he does, what's he most likely to do? Or she's most likely to do. And that helps me bring in the... Uh, there's a, a, a social studies, I'm trying to remember what the acronym is, but there's actually an acronym that was developed for social studies classes to to describe sort of a, a culture, like a real world culture. And it's like arts, politics, and there's like a bunch of, like each letter in the acronym stands for some sort of different element of their society. Oh, I, I, I remember reading that, but I can't remember what it is. Um, <laughs> and uh, I actually use that once... Uh, as a rubric for doing world building, and it was actually really, really helpful. Great. Yeah. I've seen two hands. Let's start over here, and we'll come back to you. Okay. Uh, specifically from a gaming perspective, yeah. there's the idea that you and your players need to be able to slot into the world. So yeah. if I'm building something like a society without money, that sort of thing, is there a way that you can ease your players into that without taking them out of that thing of what they already understand? Um... Like, uh, like if the world that you're building carries assumptions that are very different from sort of like the real world experience of the players, 
Um, I I just talk about it a lot. Uh, what I would do is um, what I tend to do in, in that kind of a situation is ask the players a lot of questions as you you go. Right. So if like if if your society doesn't have money, how do people pay for things? Okay. So like. like they do bar so it's a barter it's a barter economy um are the pcs part of this society or are they coming into it from outside so so are you asking i want to make sure i understand the question are you asking how to get your players to help you come up with an idea that isn't generally common in the real world it's i suppose that is part of that it's getting your players to slide into a world where something that they understand doesn't exist like if us as the society, we're in a communistic society, which I hope no one in the society in the room has ever been in. So there's, they have plenty. Of, they don't have a framework to work around of things that they they can do. So I, I have a buddy that did something like that, and um, <clears throat> what he did is he. As part of, you know, we have to submit some kind of a background, even if it's just bullet points. we, we got to give them something to work with. And he said, you need to come up with, because we were all rogues, and we had to come up with a part of whatever secret rogue ninja assassin, I don't even know what this is, society. So we had to help create some of that. So if you, I, what I would recommend is that you go to your place and say, I'm trying to create this. Your job is to come up with a piece of this and how that applies to your character. And again, let them help you build this. Because right. if you have to do it all on your own, oh, it's so much work. That's what I was saying by asking, like, asking pointed questions. What would a whenever, thieves guild look like in a society well, without right. money? What would a thieves guild look like in a society without money? Yeah. And the reason why I was asking the specific questions I was asking you is because I didn't know whether or not you were talking to me about a hypothetical or if you were actually asking me, this is a thing I'm doing in my game. Okay, if it's hypothetical, then I understand now why my previous questions were confusing because uh, I was actually trying to be like, no, really, are they in this real game that you're making? So let me back, back up uh, what he said, right? Um, you want to engage them in the process of, if not necessarily helping you with the creation of the world, orienting them on the kinds of problems that they're going to need to be able to solve so that they can start thinking about it. And, and one of the best ways to do that is by either giving them, giving them a piece of it to own or asking them these sort of open-ended questions. Oh, you want to play a rogue, but you're in this society that doesn't use money, so what do you steal? Right? And, like, sort of work together with that player to, to help deepen, right, like, their understanding. But there's also a piece of it that goes back to my, my earlier advice about the further away an element in your setting is um, from our typical experience, the more consistent the rules around it have to work. So in that, in that sense, if it were me, I would not stop at, oh, it's a barter society. Like, you have to, to get real specific with that. There's no money, but people trade X, Y, and Z goods, and these are considered to sort of be the standard items that people trade and, and this, that, and the other. Here's what's considered valuable. Here's what's not considered valuable in the society, and, like, dig into the specifics of it so that when they encounter that, you can say, okay, here are the rules for how this this thing works. Well, so you might end up with players who are going to try and find the the holes to poke into. Is, right. it, is, it, is it really super relevant that non-monetary? I mean, that's that's the question I would ask. Like, what is this a background thing, or is this like going to be you know, a front and center? That would kind of inform how much time I would spend on it. Sure. I might just I might just abstract if it's not really important. Listen, you can still buy things. You just have to barter for it, right? If it's a, if it's a background thing, I mean, it's if they don't lose money, but you can still get right. Something. But like, but but then but you if it's have front to, and center, but, then we have to ask all these other questions. Well, but if you, but even if you're bartering, do you have to like have cows with you at all times and stuff? To like just hand over, like you might have people for that, right? And like and like and it, it, it is. I guess what what you're seeing as as we all bounce back and forth here is that it's really easy to get lost in the rabbit's hole. And what you need yes. to ask yourself is, how much time do I want to devote Which to is, this? Which that's where I was going with that. A right. bit of reality, I don't know about y'all folks, I only have a limited amount of time that I can dedicate to this. Because I got like other things I gotta do, right? And so, one of the things that I do is I'll carry around a notebook or my tablet and make notes to myself along this. And I think Ross asked a very important question, how central is this to your game? If it's really, really central, okay, understand that you're going to spend a ridiculous amount of time on this, and 
they had pawn that off on the players. They'd get excited. They'll add stuff to it. And like Lenny was saying, is if it is important, ask critical thought questions. How will this work? What will this look like? How will I, how will I put this in my game? And I can't tell you how many times I've had the coolest idea. And I go to my players and I say, hey, we're going to do this. And they go... Well, I, I got, That's the dumbest thing you've ever come up with. I've got a practical so experience with this. We did a game called Rogue Trader, where you're so rich that it, you, it, the concept of pocket money is just, we abstract it. You, just, you have a, a stat called the profit factor, and you basically just uh, make a roll on that. It's like a, a threshold. Because you do, you're not counting the number of coins in your pocket. It doesn't matter. It's not important. So it's effectively a moneyless society, right? You're just, you're just so rich, it doesn't matter anymore. And so, yeah, we, we made that front and center with a lot of things that key off of profit factor, right? But for every day, like, I just want to buy a gun, dude, right? It's pretty abstract. You just make a roll and you're good to go. Sure. But if it's something really important to your character, we want to build this giant refinery station. Okay, well, then you're going to need to, you know, build up your profit factor and you need to relate it to this endeavor. You're going to need to relate to this particular thing your ship can do and relate it to this particular thing your character can do. Sure. So it's, it's, it, gets, it grows in complexity as it gets closer to the, the core of the, what you're trying to do. Right. right. But if you're saying, what do your players need? Like, make a sheet of bullet points of the things your players need to know in terms of, like, this is what's in this world. And if they, you know, either they're going to go along with that or they're going to be jerks and try and, and poke against it. <laughs> I call those my vile players. Yeah. They don't use money, do they? Oh, oh, I've got this great concept for you guys. Have you thought about, you know, representing wealth in like a Mike. small, I don't know, denominational question? Mike, I think he's trying to get our attention. Well, no, it's yes, okay. I, I, I enjoy the back. We have more questions. We do have one more, and I want to make sure we have time for it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think I fall more in the, the start in the middle of build out, and, and so I've got some fairly detailed <laughs> bits in one small area, but uh, haven't really gone super in depth. One thing that I was kind of hoping to accomplish that you, you've talked about this a lot is getting the players to, to build it along with me. I was wondering if you guys had ever tried having them do it. Not you. You talked about doing it as you play. Have you ever tried doing it beforehand? Oh yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. How, how do you go about that most effectively? Hey, Jim, do you like the Fuergans? Do you want to g g give me some more detail on that? Go ahead. <laughs> I will award. So, you, Travis, want to come play George the Vampire in my game. That's great. You need to, you've got these merits as your background. I won't let you access those merits until I have a working knowledge of them. So you need to email me something. And then every... Partway through, if I need more research done on something, I said, all right, I got 15 experience points up. Somebody send me something on this. And never fail. Do you ever have them doing stuff that doesn't necessarily relate? That's, that's specific to their character. I'm, I'm talking more yeah. generally. Absolutely. Well. It's like herding cats. I, but, but if they get excited about what you've done so far, they're probably going to want to... Participate. Oh, yeah. yeah, the next character, oh, this is the bar industry? I'm not having a bar made now, but next time I'm going to have somebody over here. I'll, I'll give you yeah. an example from Birthright. I'm sorry. Oh, you first. Go okay. ahead. I'll give you an example for this Birthright game I'm running. Uh, it's kind of about legacies. So when the characters made characters, or sorry, when the players made characters, recursion, everyone. When the players made characters, I asked them, I said, I want you to make your character, but I also want you to tell me, like, give me a paragraph about your ancestor at this one famous battle. I don't care what they were doing. You know, just tell me something about what they were doing there. And so one guy was like, well, my guy was trying to broker a peace agreement between the two sides. I'm like, oh, well, that's really interesting. And so now, like, there's a whole bunch of world building about that ancestor that relates to him in the current modern era, right? And that's, that's one example that happens during character creation. It's what happened, happens before the game. But it can even go further than that. You can even just say, well, what are you interested in doing in this game? Well, I want to, like, uh, Dave used the example of Bob, who's always wants to beat things. I want to beat things. Well, what, do you want to beat small things or big things? Right? I mean, even some very simple questions right at the very beginning with concepts can inform what you want to build into your game. If Bob likes to beat up big things, you might say, well, there's a race of giants that happen to live in the area that we're going into that are going to be a problem. So, In the new God Machine guidelines, so the new World of Darkness, part two. They have... <laughs> This time it's personal. <laughs> they have a mechanic in there called aspirations, right? So your, what's your name? Tom. Tom. So Tom owns a small bank, and it's his aspiration to be able to get enough capital to open a second bank. Okay, so that's an aspiration. So now Tom has to go do 
research on what's needed for that to happen in the banking industry because he's got to present a plan to me if that's going to happen. And so he will go and do that, and then I'm going to harvest that. And, and, and you can do that, and you can take chapter breaks in your story. Okay, you guys, it's two weeks because Memorial Day or whatever. When we meet back in two weeks, I need you to have your stuff ready for the bank. What's your name? Ross. Ross. Ross, I need you to do a little research on the Colombian cartel and their efforts to, that are being stymied by the Mexican cartels on drugs. Why is that? Oh, don't worry, that's not really important. But if you could just send me some stuff on that, that'd be great. <laughs> you want to guess who's looking at the drug trade in the next game? Let's let Lenny have the last thought on that. Are you familiar with a game called Microscope? No. Okay, so uh, it is a game that is basically um, a world-building RPG. One of the sly ninja trick uses for Microscope is that you can play Microscope with a group of people and engage them in the activity of world building and then once you have an end product play the other game that you are going to play using that information. Um, it's actually a great tool for that. Um, I have done meetings with players before um, where it's specifically like we're not here to game. Like we are here to build this world together. And then, you know, 18 to 24 beers later and a few hours later, right, we have a lot of, a lot of information. So, like, a, how do you engage them in the process of doing that? Um, that's one way. You can turn it into an activity, a group activity that's like that, right? Um, Mighty Thews? Mike, yeah, Mighty Thews. <laughs> Microscope is, just go get it. All right. Um, Unfortunately, we have exceeded our time, and we have another event that is about to start last okay. week with very much the same group. <laughs> uh, thanks very much to the group, and thanks to our panel for, for their coming. If you guys have more questions, please don't hesitate to go on Facebook directly through. It's nice to meet you.